You are now listening to an audio broadcast from First International Christian Fellowship. Get plugged in by visiting our website, ficfreno.com. Dearest, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for this time that we're together. In your word, help us to set everything aside for the time being. Help our relationship to be perfect in you by the protocol of the cross that you have taken care of all of our sins and our relationship with you is right. I ask this in Jesus' holy, perfect name. Amen. I haven't brought this up this time. I'm actually going to push the button. But I'm not making any guarantees with my timer. I just want you to know that. Uh, I am after the following of, of Joe, so who can tell? Um, might need some help with this. Huh? I don't know. Must not be. Oh, there's an on button? Oh, gee. The Holy Spirit I'm familiar with. It's this I'm starting to struggle with. <laughs> um, Book of Second Corinthians. The viewpoint of God. Um, and the verses are, will be uh, chapter 1, verse 12, uh, and 2 through 11. I want to read a verse here because this is uh, appropriate. Um, the, this is Jesus speaking. You're familiar with this. And, and for those of you who are familiar with me, I almost never quote out of the book of Matthew or any of the Gospels um, for a very specific reason. But some of the principles that are in there are, are true forever, both forward and backward in time. It's Matthew 5.44. And this is Jesus himself saying, As I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This time that we're reading this part, the context of this, Paul is being persecuted um, by the Corinthian church. And you, you'll find out more of that context. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to get God's viewpoint. Uh, so often we're stuck with our own. You know, we have our own viewpoint of, of how things are, and we'll talk about that. Um, but this is God's viewpoint. And uh, to me, it's, it's very interesting that, uh, um, is, is to understand that the greatest truth is not what you think, but the greatest truth is what's in the Word of God. Um, I don't know if you can see that or not, but this is, um, I just wanted to kind of show things around. Actually, you know, it's funny. Charles gave me a little pointer, and that pointer is in my desk, just in case anybody wanted to know. Um, but I want to take a look at this for a second, because this is actually the first and second um, missionary journey. So it kind of lets us know how Paul became familiar with it. And without some of the context of it, you can't figure it out. So the first missionary journey was about 45 to 48 uh, A.D. It's in Acts uh, 13 and 14. The second missionary journey, which is when Paul first met the Corinthians, is between 50 and 53, and it's in Acts um, uh, 15:36 through 18:22. And he was there for a year and a half. And let me just kind of show you where it is. We'll just wander off. There's no camera, right? Uh, so this is where he starts down in here in Antioch. Uh, this is present-day Turkey, and he meets them up over here, which is where Corinth is at. Okay? And he comes down through here, and he spends a year and a half. This is the very first time he's there. He's there for a year and a half. He establishes the church of Corinth um, and, and gets to know them very, very well. In fact, he's responsible for them. So we'll kind of leave it there. Let's let you know where that's at. Now, what we're talking about now in the book of 2 Corinthians, he's actually writing his second letter to the Corinthians. And the first one was written earlier. We'll get to that in a second. But the third missionary journey, uh, which is about four slides from here, uh, was between 54 and 57 A.D. So it's always good to give perspective, 
You know, um, a lot of times what happens is Christians don't get perspective, and so they mess things up. What happens is they don't have an orientation. And you have to orient, orient yourself to who's talking, what happened, what the relationship is, to really get what God's trying to tell you here. So this third missionary journey, uh, how it treks through, and we'll get to that one, um, happens in Acts 18, uh, 23 through 2038. Um, in which case, the setting of that is he's actually in Ephesus. Okay, so that hopefully that makes a little bit. The heart of God is seen through Paul, the apostle, the apostle Paul. Um, and the title of this one is Paul Changes um, His Plans. The, um, the words here say, um, uh, now this is our boast. Um, our conscience testifies that we conduct ourselves in the world uh, and especially in our relationships with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. Uh, we have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, uh, but on God's grace. Now, the boast here is not really the word boast. It's, um, if you're familiar with the word, the best word is esprit de corps. And most of us aren't familiar with that word, but esprit de corps is kind of like uh, team spirit. You know, um, in our church, we have a team spirit. We actually have, there's a group of people here, the, the, um, uh, the, the leaders and other those who, who are, uh, God would call them fellow servants. And we have a, uh, a desire to introduce people to Christ. We have a desire to help people who are believers to know who Christ is and to make Christ known. Um, and, and that's ours. That's kind of what Paul's talking about here. Now, Paul's not talking about himself. He's actually talking about his own team. That would be Timothy. That would be uh, Silas. Most of the people know him as Silas. Um, they know him as Titus. They know, uh, um, we know we're familiar with Luke. So this is his, kind of his team. And his team goes through these missionary journeys. So he, he's coming back to them and says, this is our boast. And he says, our conscience, and he's talking about the collective conscience, um, testifies. Now, the first word is that the hour, I told you who that is. The conscious is, is a word called synodesis, and it's an interesting word that most of us don't think about, and we actually use it wrong. What we do is, when you talk about conscience, your conscience is that part of what they call your norms and your standards that you keep in the mentality of your soul. Probably said that too fast, okay? Your soul has a mentality. It's listening to the words that are coming out of my mouth. That is the real you. That is the you that will live forever, okay? And in that mentality, you have what's called norms and standards. You have things that you live by, things that, um, an example, if I came up here in a, uh, in a hula hoop skirt, okay, with nice little grass stuff, um, some of you would go, okay, mm -hmm. I would violate your norm and standard for being a pastor or a teacher or anything up here in front of this church, right? Um, some of you might like it. I have nice legs. But for the most part, your conscience would condemn that. You, and that's what happens, is that when people do not behave in a way that, you, that you've been brought up to, those norms and standards judge that person, okay? You judge them as safe, or as nice, or as appropriate, or not as appropriate, okay? So those are the things that we all have. Now, what happens is when we become saved, most of us are brought up to be moral good people, most of us, not all. Um, and the problem is that we confuse our norms and standards, that we, the values that we hold and judge by, with those of God. Okay? The problem is that God wants us to change those norms and standards. Okay? Now, what he's saying here is he's saying, our conscience testifies. Okay? Testify is a word, most of us know the word martyr. 
Okay, martyr is a, actually is a legal witness. It, it doesn't mean to die, necessarily. It's a person who actually is witness for Christ, and they die as a consequence of it. Okay? But it means to, it needs to be uh, to give a, uh, uh, to be in court and actually to give a deposition. That's what it means. So he's saying here that our norms and standards given to us by God that's in our souls allow us to evaluate ourselves. And it's saying that we have, talking about his group, and he's talking to the Corinthians, is that we have conducted ourselves in the world. That's where most of us live, right? We conduct ourselves in the world. We are in the world, but not necessarily part of the world, right? So he's saying, and especially our relationship with you. Okay, talking about the Corinthians. Um, and this is the key part right here. He says, with integrity and godly sincerity. Now, the word integrity here is, um, is, is a better word that, from a Christian point of view, it is the word holiness. Okay? What holiness means, it's, it's an old word that not many people, we always associate with God, but we don't actually associate with other things. But holiness is to have um, justice and righteousness to kiss. Okay? That means that they, they meet. They meet each other's standard perfectly. They're almost equal signs. So what righteousness means is righteousness is the standard of God, and it's the justice of God. And when those things don't have any issues and they meet together, they kiss, that's integrity. Okay? God has integrity. God has us to have his integrity. Because in reality, people don't possess the integrity of God. They possess their own integrity, but not the integrity of God. Now, the interesting thing is that integrity as a human being means that you meet your own norms and standards. That's all it means. So if I, have a, if I think that robbing a bank is not really a bad thing, but it's okay to do if I, if I, if I need money as long as I don't shoot people, that's a norm and standard. Okay? And if I meet that, in reality, by definition, I have integrity. Okay? So you can, and the reason I make that joke is that it tells us that people's integrity does not mean much. It doesn't mean much. God's integrity means everything. Okay? And what he's saying here is that we have, this is what they call a genitive. So both of these words, both integrity and sincerity, fall under God's standards. So he's saying we have God's integrity, we have God's sincerity. And the same thing is true with sincerity. The, the word sincerity means to judge under sunlight. It's an interesting word, but that's what, that's what the actual Greek word is. And it means to be... Better stop doing that, huh? Um, it means to, um, to have a perfect judging standard with perfect light, okay? Now, you're, gonna, you're not probably going to think much of this, but human sincerity isn't worth a hoot, okay? People think it is. Well, he was sincere. Um, sincerity doesn't mean anything, okay? It really does not. It, it means that they really wanted to, okay? You know, I've had people who really wanted to pay me back. They were really, really sincere, but I never got the money, okay? Uh, so it helps you understand where sincerity means. So if you tell somebody that you're sincere, it doesn't mean as much as you hope it would. But if you have the sincerity of God, which means that, it kind of means that your standard of judging that in, in sunlight is the standard of God. That can be trusted. Okay, and that's what he's saying here. He's, saying, he's not saying we have integrity. He's not saying we have sincerity. He's saying we have God's integrity. We have God's sincerity. That's how we have conducted ourselves in the world and with you. That's, that's quite a standard. 
You know, and I think that that is the standard that he calls us to. Because this team that he's talking about, when he says our, at the moment he's talking about the leadership of the missionary journey people. Okay? But what God's talking about is us. Us having that integrity. Us having that sincerity. Okay? And he says here in the last piece, he says, not uh, on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. And God's grace is what's called Bible doctrine. It is the wisdom of God that is given to us. It's a grace standard. It means he knows that we're idiots, but he gives us something in hopes that we will obey that standard rather than our own. And that's what Christianity is. In reality, Christianity is about obeying God's standard, not our own. It's, the, it's God's system. When you look at the filling of the Holy Spirit that God gives to us, you look at the truth of the Word of God, it is God's system that he is asking us to walk in. Okay? And that's what he's saying to them, is that this is the standard by which we, are, we, are, we have conducted ourselves. Verse 2. Uh, For we do not write anything that you cannot read or understand. And it says, and I hope that, we'll leave that for a second. Paul is, Paul is, um, is correcting the, the Corinthians with Bible doctrine here. So what he's saying to them is say that um, I need for you to see what I'm talking about here. Um, because he wrote him this very first letter, the first letter of Corinthians. And if you read that, we, did, we read that every Sunday for months. What did Paul do in that? He essentially chewed their butts, you know, over and over and over again. By telling them as Christians, they had missed the standard. They had missed God's standard. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about a real bad part of that, but that's what he's really asking them to do. The problem when Christians miss the standard, what happens is they become miserable. It's called self-induced misery, okay? It means that we talked we talk about in the class I had just before this when we were talking about that reality, you are responsible for your choices. You're responsible for them, okay? Um, so in reality, this sounds horrible, but it's true. God doesn't care if your parents are rotten. He doesn't care if you grew up in the slums. He doesn't care if you grew up in Beverly Hills. He doesn't care if you're stupid. He doesn't care if you're smart. He doesn't care if you're poor. He doesn't care if you're rich. What he cares about is when you obey his standard. And you are responsible for that, no matter what. Okay? You will choose your way to heaven or you will choose your way to hell. You will choose your way to being a godly person or what Paul calls the enemy of the cross. Okay? Christians are mostly the enemy of the cross because they do not obey the standard of God. Okay? And that's the exact position that they are in. Okay? The, um, the word here for read and understand is an interesting word. It, it, it's, actually, it's actually a joke in here in the Greek. But the word is, the word is epigonosko, and it means to, to, to know something. Now, I use the word in the, in the noun form all the time, which is epinosis, which means the knowledge of God. And there's another word called anagonosco. There actually is, it's epigonoso anagonosco. It's kind of a joke, but never mind. I missed it too until the guy pointed it out. Um, but it means that, is that by, uh, by reading, you learn the word of God over and over and over. And by learning that, you get clarity. And you know the knowledge of God, which is the epinosis part. And then you have to choose that that knowledge is better for you as your norms and your standards than the ones your mommy and daddy brought you up with. Okay? That's what that's really saying. Um, he is wanting them to learn and to study and to have maximum effectiveness because of their maturity. 
okay? Because Christianity is about maturity. It's not just getting over the line, okay? Um, it means that, you know something? God did not save you because he had nothing else to do. He actually saved you with a purpose. And that purpose is to live his plan. And he set that plan up such that the greatest happiness is by living the plan of God, is by maturing in him, okay? And people who do not choose that are the ones who are misguided, and they are in pain most of their time. You know, the, the, if you actually, um, if, if you want to live an ungodly life, and, and, and what I mean by that is uh, people look at ungodly. I don't mean a sinner's life. I mean a, God, I mean a life that's not effective for God, okay? You will live a meaningless, purposeless, painful life. Okay? If you're going to do that, the best thing to do is not accept Christ until those last 10 minutes and then make it over the line and go to heaven. Because okay? then you can have lots of fun. Okay? But the only way you can have fun as a believer is, is true fun and true happiness is by following God. It's not doing what the world does. When, when believers choose the world standard, they are miserable. Okay? The most miserable people on the face of the earth are not unbelievers. They're believers. Okay? The people say, I don't know why the devil's chasing me. Like the devil has time to chase us, right? He doesn't. What happens is we make stupid decisions, and we have consequences of those stupid decisions, and we're in pain because of the stupid decisions, and we think, how could God do this to me, right? That's what we think. We chose, uh, but somehow God did it. The hoping here is that, is telling that Paul keeps on hoping, okay? And then we go to verse uh, 14. He says, um, as you have understood us in part, uh, you will come to understand us fully, that you can boast, uh, boast of us just as we boast in you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, you can't find many more confusing words, words than these, but we'll try to sort it out. Um, he's using the same word epigonosco again, third time he's used it. And it's really for knowledge, uh, self-discipline. You can tell that you, know, you read something over and over again, the word of God, and you, and you learn those principles, and, and, and that's what you do. You self-discipline yourself, you concentrate, and you get to know them, and then you apply them. Why do you need to know them that's so important? Because guess what? When you are under pressure in life, the things that you do are the things that you believe in your heart. Okay? The things that you believe are true, absolutely true. And that's what he's trying to get to here. Now, the part he, what he's saying, he says, you know, I wrote this letter to you, and most of you got it in 1 Corinthians, but there are always some morons who didn't get it. And what happens, and I like that word moron, because it's not my own word. It actually comes out of Galatian. It's morono, and I love it. It's, it's a great word. Um, but what it means is that God gave them all the same opportunity he gave them all the same information. But some of them said, that's great information. Thank you very much. And they turned from their ways and they turned to God's. And happiness came with that. On the other side, there's those participants that says, you ain't the boss of me. You ever heard that before? That's what they're saying to Paul. And so they have this attitude with him. And so part of them get it, part of them don't. Part of them, all of them understand what's been told to them, but only the ones who choose God, get the rewards. If you listen to God's doctrine, his principles, and you go, that's very interesting, but no thank you, okay? What that does is that that's just like you had never heard it, except more painful, okay? 
That's what happens there. Now, in reality, what's happening here is that Paul and his team and Paul are suffering because they are getting bad mouth by the Corinthians. Those parts. You know those parts that I was talking about? The part that didn't get it? Um, they are bad mouthing him. So in reality, he is suffering because of that. They have been vindictive. They are bitter towards him. And that's what's happening. So in reality, they are persecuting him in the truest sense of that. Um, verse 15. He says, because I have confidence in this, uh, I wanted to visit you first um, so that you might benefit twice. Um, what it's saying here is that um, he, he, he had confidence in the very first letter he wrote that the people he wrote, because he wasn't there, right? He was not there when he wrote that letter. He wrote that letter from Ephesus, okay? He wrote the first letter. Um, and he, after he had visited him, he hadn't been there for four years, he wrote the letter. In fact, I probably should... Uh, Show you where he's at. Let me see if I. Yeah, here he is. Okay, so what happens is that he he's actually right. Oh, I do have. A, oh, I push that little button there. Um, is there an off and on this one too? <laughs> the other button, right? Okay, I said figure there's another button here. No. No. I... <laughs> the other one, right? Okay, you know something? Fingers work much better, okay? So what's happening is that he's over here, and he's writing this letter, and this is at the, uh, he, he's right here. He's been here for three years in Ephesus, and he's writing the letter for the first one to go over the Corinthians. So he writes this around um, sometime in the springtime of 57 AD. He writes the first letter to them. Uh, once he finds out that they're idiots, he chews their butts, and what he's saying here is that I know that most of you will respond properly to this. You will take the, um, you'll take the, uh, can I say butt chewing? I suppose I can say butt chewing. He, they will take the butt chewing, okay? They, they will, they, they, he, he, and if you've looked at it, he's, he's pretty hard on them. He's not nice to them, you know? He's not, to, he's pretty straightforward. And he says, I, I wanted to read you, I wanted to uh, visit you first. And what he's saying here is that, that first he says, I wanted to visit you again to see you after I chewed your butt with 1 Corinthians, okay? And, and this is very common. This, is, this, is, this actually kind of shows you uh, his heart. Um, and the next piece says, so that I might benefit you twice, is, is, means that the, the, the second letter that comes a year later is actually a second benefit to them, okay? And I'll tell you why he writes the second letter. Let, let me just go through correction first. I say, you know, there's two things you can do with a correction. When you hear somebody correct you, you can either take it and change and those are the pieces of people who loved him, prayed for him, and had what I would call relaxed mental attitude. That's the, the system of God that means that when, that when God talks you to love people, it means that you're relaxed. You have the Holy Spirit in you. you. You live from a position of integrity. You're not concerned about the future. You're not concerned about what people think. You live in that residency of the power and the love of God. Okay, the integrity comes from you. God's integrity comes out. Okay? So those are the, the big major people. The second choice that you can make when you get your butt chewed out is that you can reject it and remain unchanged. And the it here means that when he gives them Bible doctrine, when he gives them principles, they can either take them or they can reject them. And these people over here, what they did is they rejected them. Okay? So it caused Paul to have to write a second letter okay, to address that. Okay, um, Paul really wanted to return and to see them, but he could not. So what happened here is because of this group that was within the church, um, they hurt 
they started maligning him and judging him. And one of the things they started doing is hypersensitivity. You familiar with that word? Hypersensitivity, let me give you a rule with hypersensitivity. Whenever you are hypersensitive, you're wrong. Period. Okay? Um, you'll see a lot of hypersensitivity in the news uh, and things like that. And those people are people who are stuck in what's called a mental attitude sin. They're, they're stuck in it. They can't get out. It's kind of like a, a quicksand. And so what happens is, ah, you hurt my feelings. You know, um, that's what they do. And that's a mental attitude. It's a hypersensitivity. It means that, I mean, it's getting so that you can't say anything without hurting somebody's feelings, okay? Uh, and that tells you the pervasiveness of this illness. And then when it's in the church, it's horrible. It tears them apart, okay? Because hypersensitivity is a kind of a synonym, a synonym, synonym, a synonym um, with arrogance, is that when you become arrogant, you become hypersensitive, okay? There's another thing about arrogance, is that when you become uh, arrogant, you become absolutely unteachable. You can't hear anybody. And this is, this is what's going on here. So what they're saying is saying, uh, because he, Paul said he was going to come, and he didn't come, and he wrote us this letter. And gee, I don't think he likes us anymore. I think he's mad at us. Well, we don't like him either, okay? I'll show him when he comes. That's called vindictiveness. That's called vengeance, okay? That, that's fine. We see that in the world all the time. But you know something? In, in the church and in Christianity, there is no place for it, period. None. Zero. Okay? If, if you are, whenever you are feeling angry and vindictive and hypersensitive, you are wrong. You're out of fellowship with God. You are the enemy of the cross, and you are the defender of the principles of Satan himself. That's just how it is. How can you tell that? Just read this book. It talks all about it. Okay? So he wanted to. So what's happening here is that desire is that he really, really wants to go and to help them. He wants, to, he wants them in their struggle. It says the great expression of, uh, of love is patience. Okay? One of the greatest examples of patience is, and maturity is when you don't know everything, but you trust God with it anyway. Okay? It's the foundation of everything. It's the foundation of a good marriage. You know, sometimes it's the foundation of a family. It's the foundation of a friendship. Is that, you know something? I don't have to know everything to, to love somebody, to have a good relationship with them. I just have to be patient and trust God. Okay? And that's what they're supposed to do. When Paul does not show up, they're supposed to sit down and say, you know something? Maybe God has the greatest impossible in history doing something. Duh. He is. Clearly without reservation or deviation, Paul is the greatest apostle to the church. Wrote more books, has better doctrine, he is a man. So you would think that Corinth would sit down and say, maybe he's doing something else. We should just wait for him. Okay? But rather than do that, they go the other direction. Okay? Um, Paul has confidence that God will handle this. And what's happening here is that God has told Paul something. So what Paul wants to do, let me just kind of summarize it. Paul wants to go and grab the Corinthian believers. Not these guys. These guys over here. Sorry. He says, and he wants to go, let me help you. Let me, let me explain to you what I meant. Let me, let me help you walk through this, okay? And what God has said is that, um, Paul, you're not doing it. No. No, Paul. 
Paul really wants to. Paul's heart loves the Corinthians. He desires to help them through it. But God said, no. That's called the overruling will of God. The overruling will of God is that God has things that he sits there and says, you know something? We're done. You're not doing that. Okay, he did that to Balaam, if you remember. The guy who was dumber than his ass. That's a joke. Never mind. Okay. Okay, I lost that one. I should have uh, said. But anyway, what he's doing is that, that God is overruling him. So God's saying, you know something? If you go over and try to talk to these believers who were spun out, you will make things worse. You know? It's kind of like with your kids. Your kids have the same thing. Is that sometimes your kids are struggling with something and you want to help them. Okay? And what do you get? More attitude, right? That's what you get. You get more attitude. Um, my wife actually taught me this. Good thing she walked out and won't get in trouble. But my wife actually taught me this, is that in reality, before you can help somebody, they have to repent. They have to repent. If, if you do not find repentance, all you will find is arrogance and anger. Okay? And that's the lesson that Paul's doing, what God's doing for Paul. So Paul, Paul, even though he's really wise and knows these things, his heart and his emotions are overruling. He wants to go. He desires to go. But God says, you're not going. You know something? Write a letter. If you go, this will get worse. Okay? It won't get better. It will get worse. Um, they also, one of the things that they accuse Paul of is being fickled. Okay? Fickled is like um, unstable. Uh, oscillatory is, is, I suppose, the right word for it. Uh, oh, wrong way. But you lost that, huh? He says here, and he's talking about his desire. He says, I wanted to visit you. And this want here is a deep desire. Okay, his desire is to do this. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia uh, and then to have uh, sent me on my way to Judea. Now, this is, um, this is a map that I showed you a minute ago. Uh, if you look at it, and it's hard to see, what Paul did is he went from, he wrote 1 Corinthians from here. And what he wanted to do was go over to here, right over to see them. Go back up to Macedonia, like Philippi, some of those places, Apollonia, Thessalonica, and then come back down here to see them again before he left and make this trip all the way over to here to Tyre and to Jerusalem to give them the money, if you remember that part, where he was giving the money for the poor because they were starving to death. But look at what he does. He goes from here up to Troas, and I think... Joe will cover that in the next lesson. Troas is the old Troy. He comes up to Neapolis, up in, the, in Macedonia. He writes, uh, he's actually supposed to wait in Troas for, for Titus to get uh, a response back from them on how they did with the letter. Well, he, he's so anxious that he doesn't wait at Troy like they originally talked about. He goes up to Philippi, up in Macedonia. He goes up to Philippi, and he says there, so there he actually meets with Titus. Titus says, you know something? The great majority of them received it really well, and they're doing really well, but you have this opposition party now over here who are all stuck and angry, and they're, and they're, uh, they're struggling. They're fighting against him, okay? So that's where he writes the second letter from, okay? And what God tells him, he says, I know you really have a heart and you would really love to see them, but in reality, you cannot write them a letter. Give them the opportunity to hear the doctrine of God, to help them with their struggle, okay? Um, this is a hard thing to do because if, if you have children, this is usually where it comes up, um, and you're a parent, 
you always want to save your kid, you know. Um, and I'll give you an example. And I'm going to give this example before I knew my sons were going to be here. <laughs> um, you know, um, most, of, most of you probably have heard my, my story is that my first daughter, I actually brought her up to be an atheist because I was an atheist. And I brought her up to be a really good atheist, by the way. Um, taught her all the stuff. Used to haunt and, and, and poke fun at Christians. But God didn't have it that way. About 27, 28 years ago, I became a Christian. And God blessed me with a second family uh, of, of sons and one daughter. Um, and I taught them differently because God showed me that um, I needed to teach them who he was. So every night, my sons are probably chuckling, but every night and every morning, we did Bible study. That's right. Every night of their life. Okay. Um, by the time they were about five years old, they had 100 verses under their belt. Um, you know, and then when they grow up, God gives them volition. He gives them a choice. I mean, I can't tell them what to do anymore. It's the only thing I don't like about adults so far. But they have the right to choose or not to choose. And some of them, not all of them, some of them have chosen against God against ignoring those things. And there's a part of me that would give my life to help them through that. But I can't because it's not mine to do. It's not mine to give. And it's not mine to choose. Okay? Paul is in that exact same spot. If you remember as a parent, that's the spot he's in. He, his greatest desire, he would do anything for them. But God tells him, no, you will not do that because it won't work. It'll come out to be a disaster, okay? I can tell you that the people, the leaders in this church have that same desire for you. When they see you struggle with the principles of God that they've already taught you, they have that same desire. It breaks their heart, okay? And I told my wife I was not going to cry up here like, like, like Joe does. <laughs> I'm just messing with him. Yeah, you don't get the chance to mess with people that much over here. Um, so he's telling us it's his greatest desire to visit them. Verse 17. We have 17 up there yet? I think it goes that way. So it gives you some idea what was happening. How, how, how God made Paul go a whole different direction than what he originally planned on doing, even though he wanted to. Okay. Now he says, uh, was I fickle? Because he's saying, I really desired to do that. What happened is I bypassed you. And I, I wanted to do this, but God wouldn't let me. I went this other direction. And he says, was I fickle when I, when I intended... Same word for planned. When I planned to do this, his plan he's talking about before, his original plan, was I fickled because of that? Okay. Because they were calling him fickled, like I said. Or, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner? Now, worldly manner actually isn't man worldly. It's the word fleshly. Okay. It means it makes it from the flesh. There's really two different words. And he says, and in the same breath, um, I say both yes, yes, and no, no. Now, that, that's an idiom. An idiom just means it means, uh, do I say, yes, oh, no, 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 yes, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, that, that's called unstable, right? We know what that was uh, when we're asking our mom to give us some ice cream. Um, we, had, we had her on the ropes, right? So he's saying here, he says, did I do that to you? Did I do that? Am I unstable? Did I do things from a worldly point of view? Did I act like a regular person? And the answer to that is obviously no. He did not. 
Am I unstable? And this comes from the verse, one of the verses I'm bringing up, but I'm not going to make you look it up. You'll know what it is. This is uh, Matthew 5, 37. He says, let your yeses be yes and your noes be no. Anything beyond this is evil. Okay? Now, the word evil in that verse is the word uh, porneros. Porneros. It's where we get the word pornography. It means wickedness. Okay? And what it means is that the stability that God has in his word, in his spirit, is ours. We're supposed to be stable. Okay? We are stable people. And what they are accusing him of being is more like anybody else, like an unstable person. Okay? Um, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. Um, what he's saying is that our message to you is not unstable. It's dogmatic. Dogmatic means to be uh, unflinching, to, be, to have a straight course. Okay? Um, people get dogmatic mixed up because in reality, um, dogmatic is what your values should be. But in your values, you should be flexible as a person. Your values shouldn't be flexible. You should be flexible. Okay? And that's what it's talking about here. Um, oops. Nope. Seven more verse there. Should have gone to this thing. The Son of God, uh, verse 19, the Son of God, uh, Jesus Christ, who we preached among you by us, meaning the team, uh, by me, Silas and Timothy, he's talking about his team there, was not yes and no, but in him was always yes. And what he's saying is, says, he says, when we talked to you about who Jesus Christ was, we weren't unstable at all. And still, but let me tell you what instability would, would be. What the gospel message would look like if I were unstable and I were preaching it. I'd say, well, you know, you should believe in Jesus Christ, but it's okay as long as you believe in God. Well, as long as you believe, then you're saved. That's instability. Okay? What Paul says here, he says, we weren't unstable to you. In his first example, in salvation, we were dogmatic. Which means, let me tell you what dogmatic is. It says, there is no other name under heaven which a man may be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. End of conversation, period. Okay? So, if you believe in God, you will not go to heaven. If you don't believe in any other name, the name of Lord Jesus Christ, that one Jesus, you are going to hell. Now, this isn't a salvation message. This is a message of stability. This is his point. He said, you accuse me of being unstable, yet when the gospel came up, we didn't flinch. We didn't sit there and say, well, you know, you can kind of. He didn't do it. He was very straightforward. He sat there and said, listen, there's one name. You want to be saved and live for heaven. It's not Aphrodite. It's not Apollo. It's not Zeus. It's not even God. It's Jesus Christ. That's the only name people can be saved by. Then there's a second example in verse 20. This is the one of the promises of God. He says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, which means they're dogmatic. Okay? And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Now, in Revelation 13, 4, Jesus Christ is called the amen. Okay? So when, when, when Joe's asking you for an amen, what he's asking you to do is to confirm the, dogma, the dogmatic statement that he has made. Okay? 
So if I say to you, there's only one name by, by which you can be saved, Jesus Christ, you're supposed to say, amen. Okay, that's what you're supposed to say. Not because you want to be heretics and weird people as you're screaming and stuff, because that's, um, that's not good protocol for a church. Churches are stable. God's stable, we're stable. Okay, what it is, it's confirming something that is absolutely dogmatic. Okay, it's the promises of what God, what he's saying, he's saying what happens, you, you understood the dogma of the, of the first salvation message, but you missed the one about the promises of God. Okay, guess what? God does not want to just save you. He wants to clean you up. Okay, you're a mess. Um, he wants you to walk with him. He wants you to have the happiness of God. He wants you to be his message to the whole world. Okay? John 3.16 has a promise. Okay? If you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. Forever. And ever and ever. Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's a promise. Okay? Humble yourselves, 1 Peter 5, 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up at the proper time. Cast your cares on him, and he cares for you. Those are promises. When we struggle with the pressures of life, we're supposed to claim the promises, the second part, that he taught to them. Okay? All of those promises that God said are yes in Jesus Christ. They are dependable. If you don't believe that, then your salvation is questionable from your own point of view. It's not questionable from God's. It's questionable from yours. The promises of God are meant to be played out in us and to glorify our Father and our Savior. Verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand in Christ. He anoints us. What he's trying to tell them at this point, he says, Corinthians, we're on the same side. We serve the same Christ. We have the same doctrine. We have the same principles. We're not on different sides. When you claim that I am unstable, you are defacing the word of God from what you see and how I behave, how I conducted myself. Okay? He says he does not live by the human fleshly viewpoint, which is a human viewpoint, but he lives by the, by the viewpoint of God himself, divine viewpoint, standing firm in Christ. When we have things like um, Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's a promise. That means that no matter, when life doesn't look right to me, and everything looks bad, and everything's going to hell, I can trust God. I don't have to know where I'm going. I don't have to understand the answer to every question. I just know that. Because my God, who promised to save me, and has, is the same one who promises to take care of me, and to protect me, and to provide for me, both in time and in eternity. He says, he anointed us. Anointed here is, um, um, is, is what you do when you choose somebody, okay? In the Old Testament, when people were anointed, they were, 
chosen to be king or to be the high priest or something like that. And what God is saying with this one is that he, God the Father, anointed all of us. We are chosen by him. Okay? Verse 22, he says, And he set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as deposits guaranteeing what is to come. Okay? Now, this means that the Holy Spirit is in your heart. Now, your heart's not here. We hopefully got that straight, okay? The only thing, there's not a single reference in the Bible to this being your heart, this little pumping thing here, okay? The heart is always this part. It's the part up here. It's the norms and standards. It's where you are. It's the essence of the humanity of a person in their mentality, okay? Um, how do we know that? We know that in Romans 8.28, it says... Um, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Because then we'll be able to determine God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay? So it's telling us that Bible doctrine, the teaching of the Word of God, is supposed to bathe our mentality continually until our viewpoint is proper, that of God's. So we can conduct ourselves like God, like Jesus Christ himself. Okay, Christ in you. So that's the that's the sealing part. The sealing part. The sealing part is is a part where um, the Holy Spirit is the is the operational power of Christianity. Okay, if you do everything in your Christian life by your own power, God's going to burn it all at the judgment seat of Christ, because it's not acceptable, no matter how nice you are. Okay, He can't accept it. It's unacceptable. The only power that God allows is the power of his Holy Spirit in the Christian to do things. How do we know that? Jesus Christ did the same thing. Exactly the same thing. And this is not, I was just talking about in class earlier, is that in reality, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, never used his power once, ever. He always used the power of the Holy Spirit. Always. Why? Because that's the power God gave us too. So that we could be like him. The sealing here, it's talked about, is that if you do not know and do not feel, I don't mean feel like, like a suntan. Okay. I mean feel like the, the presence of the Holy Spirit operation in your life. You, you need to be very concerned as a Christian. Okay? Because that's the only operational power that God has. Okay? He, Galatians 5.22 and 5.23. The fruits of the Spirit. Okay? First of all is love, right? It is that power and those fruits of your Spirit that are operational in you. Not your power. Guess what? Your fruit is unacceptable. <laughs> The fruit of the Holy Spirit in you is the fruit of God. Okay? This part here about sealing here, um, I really liked it because sealing is a, when you seal something. See, the Holy Spirit indwells us, but it's not necessarily operational. Okay? The filling of the Holy Spirit makes the Holy Spirit operational. Okay? That's where the power comes from. Um, I get the Holy Spirit indwelt in me as a, as a matter of being saved, but it does not become operational unless I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, which means that between me and God, there can be no sin, or that power of the Holy Spirit goes to zero. 
still indwelt. I just have no power of God. Okay? But what he's saying here is that the part that's critical is that it is the sole power of God in Christianity. So if you do not have this sole power operation in your life, you are not living the Christian life. You may be a very nice person, but you have nothing to offer God. Because unbelievers are nice too. Very nice. Okay? Now the sealing here, I like this, this deposit that God has given to us. It is the seal for you to know that you are saved of who you are. It's the orienting point of your life. Okay? The same word for sealing and anointing here is, you remember when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and Darius had to put a seal on it? That's the same word, seal. Okay? And what sealing means, it's a legal seal. It's a guarantee of the genuineness of the contents that are inside. Okay? That's our seal to show that God is in us, that we are the genuine article. That he put that in us so that we would know that we are his. He says here, he says, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it. He's talking about the, the it here is not visiting, by the way. But the word here for he says, I stake my life on it, is not the word life. Uh, life is the word zoe, like their son. <laughs> this is the word suke. It means he stakes my soul on it. He stakes his soul on this. Guess what? The soul is all you are. Okay? This life will come and go. But your soul will live forever. Everybody's soul will live forever. You know that? It's not just Christians. The question is, where will your soul live? That's the question. Okay? But this is the ceiling he's talking about. He says, I take God as my witness. I take God. I put God on the stand to witness that I did not bypass you because I, because I was angry with you, but because God himself gave me these instructions. He overrode my instructions and my great desire to visit you because I wanted to help you because you were so stupid. I want to just gather you up and help you. But God said, if you do that, you will harm them. And what, what did Paul do? He stood down. He knew that he'd take that grief from those people, but he stood down and he wrote the second letter. He wrote it to them to help them just as God had told them to. Because sometimes the very best thinking in our lives is not the best thinking. It's God's thinking. Oops, still 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you uh, for your joy because it is by faith you stand. Now, what he's saying is that we're not going to be dictators about this. Um, we're actually fellow workers. Okay, that's the word there. And we fellow, worship, work, we fellow work together for your joy. But guess what? You have to listen to instructions. Okay? And that's what he's trying to get with them to do with 2 Corinthians. He can provide the Bible doctrine and the instructions, but they have to choose it. 
okay? This is that part where you, you, you have so much desire to help somebody, but in reality, you can't make the choice for them, okay? And for those who have kids, um, and I'm really happy. One of my son has two kids. I can't wait till they put him through it. Um, <laughs> I'm just messing with them. Um, but that's what happens is that you, you know, those sweet little kids break your heart. They rip your heart right out. That's just the nature of it. And reality is that you come to know what your parents went through. And this is what he's talking about. This is the kind of love that he has. This is the kind of love that the people who serve you and talk to you about Bible doctrine and principles are doing. They, they, they love you. We have other things to do, okay? Uh, many of us spend many, many hours for this very purpose. Is because in reality, we love you. We care about you. Um, the believer must choose out of the love for the Lord. In reality, you have to want it. I can't do that for you. Paul couldn't do it for the Corinthians. The best teacher in the world cannot do that for you. You have to do it. Okay? The inner joy that comes through Bible doctrine is God's only way. Thought you'd never get out of it. We've got a whole other chapter to go here. Oh, sorry. It's not going to be longer. I know that we're... It says, I have made up my mind... Um, that I would not make another painful visit to you, okay? What he means here is that th th this is not he made up his mind on his own. The word here is, is judgment. It's discernment, okay? So what he did is what we're supposed to do. He took the word of God. He took the, 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 the instructions of the Holy Spirit that was giving him. He put them together, and he said, I have discerned. I have made up my mind. I can't do this as much as my feelings want me to. I really, really want to. But God has convinced me that my feelings cannot be followed. Okay? I hate to tell you, that is the essence of maturity. Christianity is run by its emotions today, which is why the church is in the mess it is today. I hate to tell it to you, but emotions count for zip in your decision-making process. Okay? They're, they're important. God has given to us. They help us understand things that we appreciate, okay? They help us understand our love. But acting from feelings can be a really bad thing to do, okay? It can be really be stupid. What he's saying here is that I'm applying Bible doctrine. I know the will of God, and so I've applied it. Um, he says here, he says, I would not make another painful visit, which means that he, he, he would not want to put himself under that grief. Um, and this is the grief of, that he would have done if he had gone. Verse 2. We're, we're, coming, we're coming down the runway here. Um, for if I grieve you, and this is really interesting, it says, if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad uh, but you who, whom I have grieved? And the, 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 first, the, the if I hear, the, the, where it says if, if I grieve you, that's a first class condition. It says, if and I would. If I came, I would grieve you. Because guess what? I would chew your butt again. And guess what? If I chewed your butt again, guess what? You're not going to listen to me. You're going to get angry then. So I will not do that. I will not grieve you. And he's, and he's saying here, he says, in reality, you, in order to teach somebody, you have to have a rapport. I have to love, and you have to love. Corinthians. And this isn't like the goopy stuff. You don't have to go, oh, Richard, I love you. In fact, I'd prefer you don't because that scares me. But a mental attitude love is one where you 
respect. I call it diplomatic love. It's, it's where you respect somebody, even if you don't agree with them. Okay? You, you respect the position. You respect that they're doing something for God, even if you don't like the way they're doing it. Okay? You remove your emotions out of it and say, maybe I'll just listen to what God has to say through the Holy Spirit and ignore that Richard guy. You know, that's, that's a good thing to do. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. That's called diplomatic love. That's called love by God's standard. Because when you think about the word agape that God had for God to love the world, it's not a personal love. It's an impersonal love. How do you know that? Because the world's not lovable. In case you hadn't noticed. Yeah. But you'll find, it, you'll find out tomorrow morning when you drive to work again. Um, he's telling him that, that there has to be a mutual uh, piece to this, okay? Is that if, if I grieve you, you will be wounded and our relationship will not be there. You'll be wounded, okay? What I want to do is I'm going to write you this letter that God has told me to. I'm going to give you the opportunity to read it and to adjust on yourself, to look at the Bible doctrine that's in it and to reorient yourself and say, I got it. You're right. You know something? The hardest thing to do is, is to is to accept having your butt chewed. It really is. Now, there's a piece in the scripture that says, um, when, a wise man, when a wise man is rebuked and listens, he is wiser still. Okay? That, that's what we're supposed to do. Okay? In reality, Paul chewed their butt the first time because he loved them and he chewed them out again. And he actually removed his own desire to go help them and to kind of cuddle them uh, so that he could. Okay. Verse 3. I wrote as I did. He's talking about his own letter here. I wrote this as I did so that when I came, I would not, distress, be, be, um, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. Okay, he's talking about the, the Corinthians who were stuck. Not these guys. He would have gotten a great uh, um, welcome from these guys. These guys over here who were stuck. He says, um, he would have, he, he says, I had confidence in all of you that you may also share my joy. What he's saying, he says, I had confidence that you had the ability to look at Bible doctrine and figure it out. Okay? If I weren't in your face on your own, you could read that and go, when you got together with God. See, that's what my, my wife trusts me. She actually doesn't really trust me. She trusts God in me, okay? But she knows that when, at the end of the day, when I am stuck on something, that I'll get down on my knees before God. Him and I, nobody else. And at that moment, the Lord himself is the one who will say to me, well, let's look at this, Rich. And she knows that that will change me. And that's what Paul's saying to him here. He's saying, he says, you know something? If I get out of your face and I write you this letter, I know that when you pray, when you get one-on-one -on -one with the Lord himself, that you'll review these principles and you'll come to the right conclusion. Okay? That's a, that's a, that's a great thing. That's a great thing. Um, he says, I have written the letter to chew you out at first, that it might straighten you out and that you will be restored and reoriented. That's what he's saying here. He says, at that point, then I can help you mature and grow and have the joy of God. Okay? The point is to this, is that you cannot teach somebody anything about God 
when they have mental attitude sins. That's true for the congregation. It's true for your children. true for your spouse. It's true always. For your, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, uh, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love. Now, at this point, we, we, if you're familiar with the, the uh, third missionary journey, he is having huge problems, both in Jerusalem, where people are starving to death, where he is in um, um, Ephesus, where they're having riots, which is one of the reasons he, lives. he leaves is because they're, they're having riots there. And he's having problems in Macedonia. So he's in a great trip. He's in a great stress while he's trying to help them out, is his point. And his part, he says, I anguish of heart. This is a mental, um, this is a mental pain. Okay? Ah, that's just for the first half. Yeah. I'm messing with you. <laughs> just messing with you. Just messing with you. Okay. So, um, but interesting here, he says, with many tears. Um, he says a similar thing in Philippians 3.18 and Acts 20, 19, 19 and 31. This is talking about private tears. Okay. Um, I actually experienced this yesterday when I was reviewing this. And um, I understood the point. You know, and, and God was trying to help me. I, I, I'm not really good at feelings, as you can probably tell. Okay. I don't get an F, but it's probably a D minus, you know. Um, but God was telling me, how, how do you relay something so personal to, to the congregation? How do, you, how do you explain this to people? And the only way I could think about it was with my, with my own children, you know, when I was teaching them. And to watch them uh, make decisions that were away from God. And to know that I couldn't help that. And to know that they would go through the pain of that, you know. Um, because I did the same thing to my mother. My mother trade for me for 20 years. I was a brat. And I'm saying brat because I'm in church. There's other words I could say. But she prayed for me for 20 years. But I had that same feeling where you, where you weep in your heart. You know that you can't fix it. You can't change it. All you can do is do what you're supposed to do. And trust God. Trust God. Not trust them. But trust God. Um, takes a small directional change here. Okay, but it's not really a different directional change. He says, forgive the offender. Um, this is the basis of this, and we only have uh, like four or five more verses here. He says, um, for I wrote to you out of, out of great distress. Oh, I'm in the wrong spot. Okay, here we are. Wrong spot. He says, if anyone has caused grief, and anyone here, the anyone here in this context is the incestuous believer of 1 Corinthians 5, if you remember him. Okay? He was the guy who, uh, 1 through 7, he was the guy, he was a believer, and he was in the church of Corinth. And I love this particular piece because it's funny. You know, you think Christians can't do stupid things. Christians can do some really bonehead things. So here's this incestuous believer. He is having sexual relationships with his father's mother. Okay? Did I mention he was a Christian? Okay, so I think it's pretty funny. Um, the reason I think it's funny is because... People think that Christians can't do wrong things. We can do st anything an unbeliever can do, a Christian can do better, okay, when it comes to sin. We, we are great sinners. Um, if you don't believe that, look at David and Bathsheba. Look at the murder of Uriah. It goes on and on, okay? Abraham gave his wife away twice. It still took her back, I want you to know. We do in that part. But, uh, and then uh, Isaac 
did it once. Make sure his dad had it right twice. So the whole point is that, that as, as believers, we can do really stupid things. So he's telling them here, he says, if anyone has caused you grief, and he's talking about the incestuous driver who's caused the church pain, he says, um, he has not so much grieved me, meaning Paul, as he has grieved all of you, okay, uh, to some extent. And he says, not to put it too severely. That's kind of a, not translated real well. But if you remember what happened to this thing, Paul gave them a command. They were so oblivious to the sin, probably from living in Corinth, that what happened is they actually kind of made fun about it. They all knew about it, and they kind of talked about it in their church. Okay? This incestuous believer. It was not private. It was public. Okay? So Paul, if you remember what happens in First Corinthians, he chews her butt out and says, says even, even pagans don't do this stuff. Don't you have enough sense to, to shoo this guy out of the church to confront him, to deal with him? Yeah? He's... So anyway, Paul gives him instruction. He says, I want you to throw this believer out of the church. First excommunication in biblical history. Okay? Then, I guess what I'm going to do as the Apostle Paul of the power of the apostleship, I am going to turn him and his body over to Satan for punishment. That doesn't sound good. Okay? That's the sentence to death. Okay? So we know that from the history. Um, and what he's telling him here at this point says that this believer actually responded to that, to that punishment, both of God and, and of the Apostle Paul and to the excommunication, the ostracizing. Okay. Um, try to find that. Oh, there it is right there. Little tiny letter, sorry. Uh, verse 6, he says, um, The punishment inflicted on him, the incestuous believer, by the majority is sufficient. And what he's saying here is he says, This incestuous believer, even though he committed this sin, an awful sin, he turned back to God as a result of being disciplined. Okay? By the church and by Paul and by God himself. So he turned back. And what he's telling him to do at this point is he says, he's turned back, therefore the rule of God says that you have to forgive him. So what was happening is that this incestuous believer was going back to Corinth and everybody was going, isn't that the guy? Isn't that him? I'm not, he's not very Christian. I'm, I'm not going to hang out with him. That's what they did. So they actually started, rather than taking him back after he had confessed, and had gotten away from that part of his life and turned back to God, they persecuted him even more. Now, you can see that in kind with what was going on with Paul is not dissimilar to what they were doing to this believer. Now, in reality, Christians many times mistakenly believe that there are sins a Christian can commit that should not be forgiven, but they are wrong. And that's what Paul's telling him here. He says, you're wrong. He says, if God has forgiven him, you might want to too. Because not forgiving what God has forgiven is dangerous territory. Okay? Dangerous territory. The, like I said, the congregation continues to ostracize him, to gossip about him, to reject him, which is an evil. They malign him, and they have revenge towards him. 
He is giving them the opportunity at this point from this advice of the second letter to help them to take just the doctrine that he has taught to them and to fix what they're doing. Okay? He could command them, but he does not. Because many times there's the things that a pastor or a teacher can do by commanding. More a pastor. He can command something to be true, but what he has done is he has removed the Christian's ability to take the doctrine that he knows to orient himself. Okay? And that's really important. It's like what you teach kids. One of the reasons you teach kids rules is so they can actually orient themselves in the world and make proper judgments. And that's the same thing that's going on here. He's not jumping all over them. He's saying, guess what? You might want to look at this. Okay? Yeah, I know this guy did this, but God has forgiven him. He has repented. He is no longer doing it. You need to accept him back into your fellowship. Okay? We in Christianity frequently shoot our wounded. Okay? We do. Okay? Divorced people are one of the best examples I can think. You've been divorced? I've been married for 40 years. Surely there must be something wrong with your Christianity. You're not doing it right. Paul was a murderer. Joseph was a murderer. David was a murderer. They're all in the upper echelon of the believers in the Bible. And I'm not telling you to go murder somebody to get up there, okay? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that all things are forgivable. The reality is that we frequently forget our own sins when we look at others. And that's what Paul's trying to get them to do here. Is that, you know something? If any of us had our sins, our deep secret sins displayed out here for everybody to look at, it would not be pretty, huh? So I think that's what, the, what, what he's saying here. Seven. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When the people who are supposed to love you turn against you and they are the point of your persecution, that is hopeless. It's awful. It's unforgivable. Oh, that's right. It's forgivable. Because all things are forgivable. Okay? And what he's asking them to do is to change their viewpoint. To forgive him and to comfort them. Okay? The word comfort them is parakletos. This is the same word used for the Holy Spirit, the comfortor. And it says, because God comforts us, we need to comfort others. That's our, that's our job. And we should comfort this man. And the consequence of this is if we do not. The word, here, it, it, the word here for overwhelm is to be swallowed up to the point of being devoured. So they're saying, you as Christians should never be the people who do that. I urge you, verse 8, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him, to give assurance, okay? And agape, this is the mental attitude love, to be kind and to be gracious. This is not talking about human love. This is talking about God's love. God's love in you, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the very first fruit. That's what he's asking you for. Because human love is not enough. If it were, we all might be saved by something else, huh? But we're not. Another reason I wrote you and not visited 
is to see if you could stand the test and be obedient in everything. Here, the test is to be a proof. He says, a pastor, this is the part of the time. Pastors can do a lot of things, but sometimes they just have to um, apply what they already know. Okay? They have to apply it over. They have to be become. This, this piece here, there's an, an example to this thing. This is to test and be obedient. The word here is to be responsive obedience. I mean, just don't do it because you've been told to but to respond to the word of God and do that on your own. Stand on your own. Be that mature person that God wants you to be because you're going to need it later on to apply that doctrine. Let's hear how. Um, anyone you forgive, I forgive also. Um, and, what you have, and what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven it in the sight of Christ for your sake. Um, Paul's saying that even though he is not present, um, he has already forgiven the incestuous believer. Why has he forgiven him? He hasn't even seen him. Because he knows Bible doctrine. He knows the principles of God. God's principles apply. He applied them. He didn't sit there and say, oh, that's such an awful sin. He just... God says it's done. If God says it's as far as the east is from the west and never to be remembered again, then that's my responsibility too. Okay? And for the sake of Christ, in the sight of Christ here means, in the sight of Christ um, means, is, is a, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that the word of God is the mind of Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. It says, Christ will have forgiven him. Now, forgiveness is actually done by God the Father. But Christ has forgiven him. I have forgiven him. Doctrine requires that you forgive him. Make your choice. Okay. And the last word here, uh, verse 11, he says, In order that Satan might not outwit us, and for we are not unaware of his schemes. Um. Notice the word might. Might's an interesting word. It's, it's word of potential. Okay, whenever you see might, it's called the subjunctive mood, but it means potential. It means it can go either way. Okay? If you do not obey these things, Satan will defeat us in our own church. That's what he's saying. It's up to you. It says we are vulnerable. The, 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 the word here, the interesting, the, the word that's actually uh, used here for outwit is a word, um, it means to counterpunch. I thought that was an interesting word, to counterpunch. And what it means is that Satan is a great counterpuncher. If you know anything about boxing, when I go to hit somebody, I am my most vulnerable point because I'm vulnerable all here. My face is out here. In reality, if somebody just ducks, that's where they catch you, okay? When you punch somebody... You are your most vulnerable. And that's what he's saying about Satan. He says, when you, when you do something like that, when you condemn somebody, you are your most vulnerable. Be careful. Be prudent. Remember the part where it says how to correct a believer, and it says, when you go there, be careful how you correct him, because you too are vulnerable. Remember it says that? That's what it's talking about, is that when you are high and mighty and you think that you're the righteous person, you are your most vulnerable of any time. And to be very, very careful that you are prudent with God's prudence. Okay? Because Satan is a great counterpuncher.
Okay? Satan wants to divide us from God, from each other, and from his word, from God's word. I want to read one last verse to you. Okay? It's Ephesians 4.32. And with this, I'll close. Some of you know your prayer has been answered now. Um, he says here, it's Ephesians 4.32, if you want to look it up. Uh, I didn't want to. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. That's the measuring stick, is that when you think about how much the Lord has forgiven you for, that is the basis of your ability to forgive. And the kindness he's talking about here, um, where he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, this is not human kindness. It's not human compassion. It's compassion and kindness of God, the Holy Spirit in you. So, thank you. That was a message from First International. You can access more by visiting our Facebook page, facebook.com slash FICF Reno.